Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to another episode in the heart of the NBA Finals. We have made it through five games of the Finals. We are on an off day. Game six is coming up on Thursday. Cody, how are you feeling about this series? Honestly, like the amount of the prep and like watching between them, I'm personally feeling exhausted, which makes me think you're feeling like infinitely more exhausted. Do you want to talk about your exhaustion at all? I don't have the energy to talk about (laughs) my exhaustion. My electrician came by earlier and he asked me about the finals and he said, what do you think of the two days off? And I said, three or four would be nice. (laughs) (laughs) I think he was confused. So yeah, it's, uh, it's been a long season and we've, we've crescendoed. And I I think the good part about it, um, at least for me, I can't speak for anyone listening, um, out there, wherever you're listening, the car, home, the office, on walks. I know a lot of people like to take a nice Saturday morning walk and listen to the show. Um, But the thing I've loved about this is it is great high-level basketball. You got this crazy Celtics defense, um, the way the Warriors have an offensive system that still is fairly different than the rest of the league. The two coaches in the series, I think, have been fantastic throughout. Maybe let's start there. I want to start there by giving Steve Kerr some love. I've mentioned recently, I think one of the episodes in this series, I think I was talking about how I think Steve Kerr is an historically great coach. And there were a few things in game five that I just realized in my notes were like, hey, these are the kinds of things that I see over and over again about coaches and I jot them down and they never, they get lost in the shuffle. You know, coaches, um, if they make some critical sort of decision about a substitution or a lineup in a big loss, then the fan base remembers that because they yell at the TV and they say, why didn't the coach, why did he play that guy five minutes in game seven of the finals or whatever the case may be? Um, And then if there's a win, usually it's the players, unless there's some very famous tactic that the coach uses. And then what happens is a coach gets a reputation over like years and years and years of, oh, this coach is always in the coach of the year running, Eric Spolstra, he's won championships. That's kind of how they build reputation. But I realize for me, even even with a coach at the championship level like Steve Kerr, there are just a lot of instances where you go, man, this team is so well coached. Like, for instance, there is there are a couple instances, um, definitely in game five, but I want to say in a couple other games in the series, where the Celtics run small, small pick and roll. They were running more small, small pick and roll in game five, it felt like to me. And so that means you have like Curry and Jordan Poole as the defenders or Curry and um, Clay Thompson or whatever it would be. And I think twice the Celtics ended up running this inside the three-point line. And so instead of switching or instead of... Curry going into the hedge where he jumps out to the ball so they can avoid the switch and then recover. Cody, he's in a drop. It's like, (laughs) think about the attention to detail for that to come up in an NBA Finals game. And because of your preparation for the previous 10 months, you go, hey, in that situation, we'll just drop Steph Curry eight feet off. Because because why do we care if they take a 20-foot jumper when they come around the screen? right? We don't care. And we don't really, we don't need to switch here. So let's just sag him off five feet. It's, it's little things like that with Steve Kerr, the Celtics, um, one of their 
staples that they run in their offense is a delay set where the big man has the like Rob Williams has the ball in the middle of the floor above the three point line. Um, and then the four other guys can run action and they like to run like pin down or flare screen on the left side of the court and the right side of the court at the same time. And there's some plays in game five where you see Steve Kerr waving his arms like he's directing a plane on a runway, basically like telling his team, here comes the action and remember to play it this way. And what you what you watch when you see the film is the side where Curry is involved in, they're trying to avoid the switch. The other side with defenders like Draymond and Wiggins or whatever, they're just switching and playing their roles and keeping a man low and that low man can help on the on the weak side. Just like spectacular attention to detail like that that has the whole team on the same page defensively. And you can't press a button and make that happen. Like there was no chance the Brooklyn Nets were going to be a good defensive team in the playoffs because you can't just hit the switch and make that happen. It takes months or years of preparation. And I'm always just so impressed when I dive into film like that about like, man, that coaching staff is always really good. I think it was one of my favorite points you made. I think it was on the Dave and Kyle pod that you had with them when you were talking about Steve Kerr. And you made the point that like when you take the totality of everything that he does, when you take the uh, the dealing with all the different egos, and I don't mean that in like a pejorative sense, just like all personalities. of these, yeah, these personalities yeah. coming together and making sure that everyone's jiving, getting along with people, being able to push the right buttons, but also this preparation and X's and O's thing. But still, when I hear p- people talk about coaching, I never hear people bring up Steve Kerr and the like Pantheon X's and O's guys in the league right now, right? It's always, you know, the, the same couple of coaches that keep coming up. So in terms of just looking at the X's and O's, you just illustrated a couple of really key things that Kerr is doing. M- maybe it's that he's under a microscope right now and we have a lot of time to just watch him. And maybe you're not particularly interested in this kind of a question. But where would you place him if you were to like, I know you love tiering, but where would you place him in like a tiering of X's and O's coaches in the NBA right now? Yeah, it's a, that's a great question because... I think a lot of times um, Brad Stevens was known for out of bounds or after timeout plays, drawing up these set pieces after a dead ball. You get someone like Nick Nurse, Eric Spolstra, they can run kind of really cool specials in situations or try different things that stand out. Kerr is creating essentially a continuity offense that that like requires reading and reacting. And so in that sense, he's drilling in the X's and O's execution into the DNA of the offense. So I think it makes sense that you're less likely to see people pop up on Twitter the next day and be like, you know, look at these crazy X's and O's adjustments that Golden State made with this offensive play calling. With that said, I think a lot of the ideas that he comes up with as counters or wrinkles are kind of brilliant, frankly. Um one of the ones we talked about, I think, off air was they uh, they have a very common play they run called Motion Week, and they usually have Steph Curry peel off out of the action, get the ball back, and then basically end up in a in a pick and roll. And they like inverted Curry and Jordan Poole in the Mavs series. I think it was the Mavs series, and it like completely threw off the other team. So they do little things like that. But even just in Game Five, um, I did have one more Steve Kerr note that plugs into this. After halftime, they came out and it looked like a play that they had drawn up to start the half. The first play of the half, I think they technically had a turnover, so they couldn't run it on the first play. It was an early pass stolen up top. But they come down and 
after halftime, they have seen the way the Celtics are defending Steph Curry, which I think we're going to talk about more today. So they knew they were giving him more attention. They knew they were treating him more like, hey, this is the Steph Curry treatment. We've got guys face guarding him. The big men are going to be up and involved and possibly switching. Um, So what's Kerr do? He says, ah, now we're going to use Curry's screening gravity. We're going to have... So the play, it's just brilliant if you think about it. Otto Porter's at the top. 30 feet away with the ball. That means Rob Williams is guarding him because Otto Porter's a three-point shooter. Rob Williams isn't hugged up on him, but he's out high, right? He's out near the three-point line. Curry comes from the baseline, sets a back screen so Otto Porter can cut back door because basically what they're saying is if you're going to play Steph like this, we've seen this before, you know his man, Marcus Smart, is not going to leave him when he screens. So now Rob Williams has to fight over that screen and chase... Uh, Celtics defended it pretty well. Rob uh, Al Horford made an amazing weak side rotation to save a layup. And then even with that said, when the ball was swung back around, Curry ended up wide open, but Clay Thompson fumbled the third pass um, when the Celtics were in rotation. So it didn't end up in this notable thing, but it's little stuff like that where you're just like, man, that's a brilliant way to use what the defense is doing against them, to use the power of Steph Curry. And he constantly throws these wrinkles in here and there when you really try to get into the X's and O's within a playoff series. And this was something we were talking about last episode, the kind of push and pull of the sorts of defenses and schemes that you play with. Anything that you do is going to have an opposite and equal reaction, right? So we, we were talking about in terms of Curry, like you let him take pull-up threes, he's going to catch fire and drop 40 points on you. You high hedge and don't actually drop back. Because that, that was a key part of the video that you just put out, I think that was, that was yesterday, is the fact that you have these clips where... It looks like for a second that guys like Horford and Rob are actually doing their high drop like they've been doing, but they're not backpedaling. They're not doing the backpedaling dance. They're actually staying up at the level of the screen, and there's there's that great play where Rob actually gets up there and contests and makes Curry pass out of a, a pull-up jumper, which is really pretty incredible if you think about it just because Curry's shot is so quick. But I think then we saw the impact of Curry's game that we didn't necessarily see in game four, which was his ability to get those four on three situations for guys. Like we saw Looney in a short roll situation. You can get Draymond in a short roll situation. I think Wiggins had his spectacular layup in that uh, being Curry was being blitzed. Wiggins gets the ball and he's able to fly in. That was, that was a really, really pretty layup, just an aesthetic layup from Wiggins. Uh, so that's, that was really interesting because it opened up the door for more, a more classic Curry, impact sort of game as opposed to him just dropping 40 some points yeah you know and of course the debate that now everyone is having is like well can can curry actually have a bad game or what does it what does it say about the ceiling of the impact on the other side if you don't if you don't let him shoot 15 threes in a game and you kind of displace that responsibility onto his teammates um I, yes, I think you you can have a bad game. The fact that he missed all nine threes in the game and I think finished, what, like 7 of 22, your true shooting percentage is south of 40%. That's not good. But we've talked about this extensively. We've talked about it with Jason Tatum within this very series, coming off the Game 1 and Game 3 victories for the Celtics. We've talked about it with Luka Doncic. Playmaking is a huge part of basketball. And playmaking within an individual game might not necessarily have the same ceiling of just taking 40 shots and like making twice as many as you're supposed to make like the actual value of going from hey the team should normally score 
40 points on these 30 possessions, but with this player, they scored 58 or something like that. Yeah, maybe it's hard to ever have playmaking games that touch the value of outlier scoring. But in general, playmaking is insanely important. And the thing I thought Curry had going for him in game five, ironically, actually missed two or three layup layup passes that I think he's been hitting with higher proficiency this season. But in game five, he not only had a really strong playmaking game and occupying these defenders and being double teamed and things like that, but all those possessions in the first half where the Celtics face guarded him and increased the spacing of the Warriors and allow the team to play four on four. Um, like, I don't know if this needs to be explicitly stated. If basketball were four on four instead of five on five, offensive ratings would be much higher right? Just like if it were three on three or two on two, it, it's a lot easier to play with that extra space. And so what I thought you ended up with was a massive, massive spacing effect game, um, a pretty strong playmaking game, and then a subpar scoring game without shooting. It's not like he's out there chucking it, like taking 30 or 40 shots a game. He just had his, you know, 22 field goal attempts and needed probably to make a couple more buckets to have a decent scoring game. And then I thought defensively, he again, you know, the the Warriors defense was kind of like the story of the game to me. I thought he was a positive part of that. So I think when we evaluate single games in the postseason, this just seems like a theme that we keep coming back to harping on, you know, this guy missed five extra shots, right? without even thinking the context of those shots. Does someone else get them? Are they at the, at the end of the shot clock? Are they in transition? And it's a three-on-one, so your offensive rebounding percentages spike. Like it, it always throws me off a little bit because it just reduces the game to this one component when there are so many other more valuable things happening on the floor. This is why I like talking to you, Ben. You Thanks, s- Cody. <laughs> you, you say things, and there's like 900 brilliant directions that I want to go off on, but there's only one, there's only one linear conversation we can have at a, at a single time. So I'm hopefully, hopefully I'm picking the right direction here. But you hit on something that I literally asked myself in my notes while I was watching this. It was, I think it was around the 9.15 mark of, of the third quarter. And it, it's one of these four-on-four situations where Curry has Horford on him, and Horford is like, like, I'm talking, like, hunched down. Like, classically, I'm gonna... Like, when a big guy gets in a small and they really have to exaggerate, like, they're pulling up their shorts and, like, this small guy can't do anything against me. Horford is just, like, a statue watching Curry. And it's a weird possession, because Curry doesn't move from the corner. And it's very odd to see Curry off-ball not moving. Like, it's really jarring to see that. And the rest of the team, the rest of the Warriors, I mean, everyone else out there played four-on-four. And ultimately, I think uh, Otto Porter got an open three that he ended up missing. And so I was thinking philosophically, like, if you have Curry and Horford out there, I'm like, would I rather... This is a question for you, too. Would you rather play four-on-four... With Curry not being that four, or would you rather play five on five with Curry being part of that offense, or or is it not even an either or situation? Because I couldn't get over that question when I saw that possession. You mean if I'm Golden State? Yeah, if you're Golden State. Uh, I think it really depends on who else is on the court, because I think there are some lineups where you really need Steph to pressure the defense either with the movement or with the ball the the funny thing about that is like you're saying how weird it is to see him stationary he's doing that because he knows he knows the coverage and he's ascent whether it's him or Kerr or whatever he's just saying hey at this moment with what we're running over there on the other side of the court if I can literally just remove you from the play we'll take that for the next six or eight seconds of the possession um and interestingly, like there's some meta game stuff there where he can rest 
during those moments. So, you know, I don't, I don't know how much Golden State, again, depending on who they have out there with the other four, minds possessions where he stands at half court and Marcus Smart, the defensive player of the year, just holds his shorts for him. Well, they well they wait for the possession to unfold, and of course it it reminds you of that. We've talked about this before. That game that he played in college yep. at at Davidson, where the opposing team double teams him the whole game without the ball, and the coach assumes that he's going to force shots, and he just stands in the corner the whole game and lets his team play four on three. And if you think four on four is good, Cody, you sh- you should check out some four on three basketball because I think you, me, and a couple of the other thinking basketball guys, we we can actually do some damage against three uh, decent players. It is a nice advantage. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Rated PG-13. Did you have other thoughts? Because I have uh, I have a stat here on, on Curry. Ooh. Ooh, I did. I... Do you want me to talk about Curry being bad, or do you want to launch out your your stat here? No, let me do my stat, and then you can talk about Curry being bad because right, let's do the through the first four games of the series, the Celt, uh, the Warriors' offensive rating with Curry on the court was around one seventeen. Of course, we we know these kinds of stats are noisy. That's why we talk about shot quality and things like that. The Warriors Warriors only shot twenty two percent or something from three in the game. They were nine for forty. Clay Thompson was the only starter for Golden State to make a three-pointer in the game. Wiggins also missed all his threes as well. So just keep that in mind. But I like looking at the actual on-court efficiencies within a game to kind of get an idea of the results within that game. And in game five, with Steph Curry on the court, they were actually slightly better at 119 offensive rating. They were plus 15 in his minutes. They were minus five in his minutes when he went to the bench, and the offensive rating was 68. <laughs> yeah, so I don't know if are you, you are. Are I, you just, okay? I just choked. I just choked. Cody legit just oh choked on his own thoughts. Woo! Yeah, that but was again, incredible. It's, it's only like what? What is? What does he sit in the game? Ten? How many minutes did he play in this game? Thirty-seven minutes. So it's eleven minutes, and there's going to be variance in there and whatnot. But I think it's reflective of the shot quality dip that is created when he goes to the bench. And again, if you are creating much better shots for your teammates on a possession-by-possession basis based on your presence, um, that is just about the best thing you can do as an offensive player in basketball. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back for a second then get back to where we are here. I think my favorite part, I think it was a Loyola-Davidson game when Curry was, was held scoreless. My favorite part about it was, I think his name, Jim Patsos, the coach, he gave a quote afterwards, and he... he I don't remember it exactly, but it was basically like, I w- this will be remembered more for holding Curry scoreless than for a win. And boy, was he right, because we are still talking about this random game 14, 13 years later. Uh, and number two, what I want to talk about is you, you cited offensive rating. We look at these other indicators to talk about how Curry might, uh, Curry was definitely still very valuable on the offensive end. Uh, how do you take a single game from somebody like Gur- Curry? that has this latent value that isn't just from his scoring in the box score? And how do you actually evaluate it and determine if he's having a bad game? Like, if 
even if I were to tell you like what percentile of a Curry game was this, how would you go about trying to determine that? And then if we were to actually line up all of his games and percentile it, like how would we figure out which were actually bad games from him? I think I think single game evaluation is very hard, but the process is still very similar to how I would evaluate a player in a 25 game sample or over the course of a season or a three season peak or whatever. I'm looking at the strengths and weaknesses, the patterns, the tendencies, the tactics on film. And then the data is an actual catalog of events that your brain can't keep track of. It's, you know, someone else is basically doing hand tracking for you. And then you have to contextualize each of those data points. So sometimes 7 of 22 shooting isn't a big deal. Sometimes 7 of 22 shooting is a bigger deal, especially when there's less playmaking going on. Sometimes your passing, holding the ball, your decision-making hurts a lot. Sometimes it helps. Sometimes you, you know, set two or three brilliant screens. You go get two loose balls. There was a, we got to talk about Draymond Green at some point. There was a play where... Rob Williams had inside position on him on a rebound and Draymond doesn't get the rebound, but he gets his hand up to kind of slap the ball and push it out of Rob's hands. That creates a loose ball. And then it ends up with a Warriors rebound. And I don't think those things are even captured in the box score. So it still has to be about evaluating what's happening on the court and then using the data, like looking up the offensive rating. That's just a reference point. That's not a definitive statement of what happened. Uh, I like to look, like I said, I like to look at playmaking. I like to look at the defensive effect and the defensive reaction on a player decision-making, obviously his scoring that still has some context, like turnovers with two seconds left on the shot clock that goes out of, that go out of bounds. Um, you know, is that better or worse than missing a shot when it's thrown to you as a hot potato? These are all the things that I'm kind of thinking about in these small samples and then defense Cody. And how do we you know, evaluate or uh, quantify defense. It's still a very difficult thing, but I'm going to look for the same kind of key indicators on defense. Are you uh, making your rotations? Are you communicating your man defense on the ball? I don't know if I necessarily care about the ball going in sometimes because there's a ton of variance on field goals against, but did you get beat? Are you, are you being broken down? Does your team have to react? Or are you holding your own and creating difficult shots? So, the totality of that, whew, it's a lot to take in. Um, that's sort of, to me, the evaluation of a single game. And it's un- one of the reasons why I get frustrated when someone is sort of deified for having a good scoring game or crucified for doing all these other things well, but they have a bad shooting night. My favorite example ever, I think, is Scottie Pippen's game one of the 98 Eastern Finals. He's like one of 10 in the game, completely dominates the game defensively. Mark Jackson can't even bring the ball up the court, changes the entire tenor of the game on defense. Does that make it an all-time great game? No, it's hard to have an all-time great game when you're one for 10. Just like in game five, it's hard to say Curry had a great game or a really good game or something like that. But the all the other things make a huge difference to me. I know you've done past work on trying to determine as close as possible about how much value a player would give to a a league average team across a given season. And if I remember correctly, like the all-time players, probably like seven, seven and a half points per game that might be worth. Am I, am, am I right on that? Am I? Yeah, I mean, I still think there's some some ambiguity, but based on the research, you know, whether you're at six points a game, seven points a game, something like that, you're in all-time 
territory. So in terms of that, because that's across an entire season, what do you think like a high end would be for a player in a given game? Yeah, I think I mentioned this on a recent pod. I it's, think so too. That's why I'm yeah. asking because I think it's no, on it's, top of mind for it's you. It's harder to ballpark, but I really think we need to realize that the scale of that is probably like a 20-point swing instead of a 5-point swing. Um, and then, you know, that how often do you have a game like that? Probably pretty rarely. But the ceiling, like when when you go out, if, if you're Kobe Bryant, you go out there and score 81 points um, or 62 points in three quarters or Clay Thompson, you make 14 threes or something like that. Like, like those are just going to the your your win probability in those games just from that single shooting performance of occupying those possessions goes way up regardless of the quality of your team. So, yeah, it, it's it's a big deal. Um do you want to talk about the Celtics offense? Yeah, let's talk, let's talk about the Celtics offense. Yeah, so I thought the key in game five, um, and actually, let's let's get to the Celtics offense in a second, because while we're on the Warriors, let's, let's finish up with their defense. Draymond Green, I feel like the discourse around him this entire series has been kind of off for me. Uh, he's obviously struggled offensively. We've seen him struggle in the past with size, with athleticism, especially as he ages. But, I mean, Oklahoma City in 2016, Toronto in 2019, this Boston team in 2022. And I think you see that finishing around the rim, um, rebounding. I referenced earlier, you know, he's like tipping rebounds instead of going up and getting them. That's an issue for the Warriors sometimes when they go small or when he's the center. But, man, I mean... He had one defensive game in this series that for him was de- definitely subpar. There's another one in there. You can question how good it is. But I mean, I think out of the five games, we're talking three defensive performances that are anywhere from good to great. The The game two performance was phenomenal. He was huge last night. It was that last night. I don't know. I've lost track of the days. Two days ago in game five. And the thing that I think is so important about his defense in this series, Cody, is that he gives Golden State another weapon to throw at the big wings of the Celtics. And it can be challenging in the postseason. We know rosters sometimes don't even have any of these big wings. And you go up against Boston, it's like Tatum and Brown are just going to find a way. They're, they're, they're not necessarily Pippen and Jordan. They're not this like elite thing, but they're really good. And they're going to find a way to wear you down. Marcus Smart's also a big guard. And what ends up happening is, now you have Andrew Wiggins, really good isolation defender. Now Clay Thompson has, has risen from the ashes. We're seeing the defensive juices coming back from Clay Thompson. And then you go, oh, Draymond, you just, you just go guard Brown. But you can also switch on to Tatum in possessions. And I feel like this has been maybe the turning point in the series in the sense that whatever Boston's doing, whether it's the drop, whether it's playing Curry to score more, that scoring equilibrium is about where we thought it would be before the series. The Warriors are about 110, 111 points per 100 because the Celtics are a really good defense. I don't think they're going to come out and smoke the the Celtics. And on the flip side, I'm not sure the Celtics can do anything to really, 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 truly slow down the Warriors. So Boston has to find a way to score. I think it was Dave in the previewing the series who said, I just trust the Warriors to score more consistently at the end of the day. Well, it comes it, it comes down to something like this, right? Where Draymond is a guy that can t- 
tactically change what you can do and help strangle the strength of the Celtics offense. And we've seen it with turnovers. We've seen it with tough shot making. Put Tatum and Brown in disadvantageous positions relative to where the Celtics want them. Sorry, go ahead. No, so I, I, I felt a pause for a second. I'm like, this is my I, moment. Don't I probably paused, I'm, you know. <laughs> uh, bringing in your, your video again, another point that I, I really liked is that in a single possession, the Celtics, somebody like Brown, somebody like Tatum, might, like, they're getting multiple switches going on in different actions. For the first couple of seconds, I'm being guarded by Wiggins. Next couple of seconds, it's Clay. Next part of the possession, I got Draymond on me. Like, that is just a gauntlet, not the gauntlet, not to be confused with the gauntlet, but that is a gauntlet of very strong wing defenders. And I think a really interesting thing about Clay is he, he's always been a strong man defender, but I almost feel like, and maybe it was an outlier game, but I feel like he's been a little better at even uh, defensive playmaking with creating turnovers and getting his hands in there. I always think that when a player is able to steal a dribble handoff, that's, that always just blows my mind. I'm like, you're literally handing the ball to a player and you're able to get in there. And he was able to slip in there for a steal there. And I, I think he had another one where he was able to strip someone cleanly. And I, I don't remember seeing Clay doing to that, that too much in the past. Um, I, I don't know if you noticed this, but I feel like that the Warriors defensively in this last game were selling out a little bit more to take away the paint from the Celtics. It felt like they were more okay with giving up three pointers. And I think when it really stood out to me, when that really stood out to me, I think it was in the, it was in the third quarter, about the six minute marks, it's a six and a half minute mark. Uh, Horford's trailing. Okay. And he hits, I think it's their eighth straight three pointer, but Draymond doesn't have this huge effort to help out and stop him. Like he is sitting in the paint. And when Horford catches it, there's not this mad scramble to hit to, to go and contest him. And I feel like I saw that quite a few times. And, and I think, I think Zach Lowe and Chris Herring talked about this, but Draymond's rim protection was really impressive. And I feel like a part of that is that the Warriors sold out more to keep him near the rim. I, I don't know if you noticed something more like that, but I think that was more of it. Is A, you have you have Draymond who can go out there and defend these wings one-on-one, but B, you can also keep him by the rim and have him have this rim protection when Kevon Looney's out. So he has this multifaceted value as a defensive player for them. Oh, absolutely. I think he is both the best paint communicator in the sport, the best horizontal helper in the paint, right? Not shot blocking vertical version, but rotating and picking up threats. And then he can also guard wings and be deployed on wings in this series. That's why I think the discourse around him is all off in this series. I think he's had a, uh, you know, overall, let's leave his standards aside. He's had a good series, but he's also been critical to what Golden State has done in the series just because of his singular brilliance as a defender. To your point about three-point shooting, um, I don't know if they're like selling out to to give up more threes what i do think is part of what you're saying is they are at their best when they're kind of in their shell when every box is in elbows you got a guy on the block a guy at the elbow someone's out top and you want to play isolation basketball against them i i don't think it's the way to attack this defense i think that's when golden state's at their best so you cited that possession there's a number of them in the game especially in the first half and in that run uh, in the second half where you get switches up top where it's like wiggins uh clay thompson uh say hello to my little friend draymond green oh now you have to be guarded by the gauntlet the gary payton and his defense taking that defensive unit to another level he's so versatile 
He's so quick. He had a couple steals, so he's good in passing lanes. We've obviously talked about him before. But you look at a play, there's a play where he strips Jalen Brown late. It's late in the third, maybe in the fourth. I can't remember off the top of my head. And basically, someone, I want to say Marcus Smart, slips the screen. So Tatum is putting Curry into pick and roll. Uh, Wiggins gets his hands up, tips the pass a little bit. Smart slips it and rolls hard into the paint kind of breaks free. Gary Payton comes from outside the three-point line on the opposite wing and just teleports down right in front of him to basically cut that off. And then when they reset it, what do you end up with? You end up with Jalen Brown in isolation against the gauntlet, against Gary Payton the second. And I talked about the Celtics influencing Brown to the left. He actually got back to his right hand, but Cody, that's the gauntlet's lair. Because that's Gary Payton's left hand. And that huge young glove coming across the body. We've seen him do it over and over again. Just pick the pocket off the other way they go in transition. Uh, I, I really think, especially at this point, that's been the key to the series. Because the Celtics just need a little more offensive juice. And Golden State has found a way to, at least for three of the last four games, really take it away from them. I think I find the discourse about the Warriors to be really funny because I feel like yesterday, yesterday, I don't even remember when the game was. Last game, it was like, oh, Curry, bad game. Draymond, really, really a bad series. Clay is even going to be able to play. Pool, bench him. Like, at a certain point, this team is winning the series. And unless you're making the argument that every single player that is in this finals is having a bad series, like, I don't accept that. I mean, is that possible? Sure. But I don't accept that because I think that's highly unlikely. You ha- it's, like, it's the same argument. It's the same argument that I was talking about, like maybe Durant on the Warriors. That's like, oh, we can't give him credit because that team's so good. Yeah, they're so good because Kevin Durant is on it. Like when you are really good, you make really good teams really, really good. And that sort of thing is happening in, in this series is when you have a bunch of really good players, it makes other really good players that are against you look not as good because everyone is really good. So that's been an, a, an annoying part of the discourse that you, I don't know. Are, are they playing as well as they might play against a insert random lottery team at like April? No. Or March? I don't even know when the regular season is anymore. Um, so keep that in mind, the relative impact that these players have against other high-level players. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle, a run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Sticking with the Boston offense, um, they, and you might have more philosophical, philosophical thoughts on this, because they're doing what a lot of teams do. And it is amazing to me how often teams will attack defensive weaknesses over and over and over again, looking for switches and mismatches, just as like, that's the offense they're going to run, period. 
And it's not to say that the Celtics don't run some of their pet actions. But for instance, for much of this season and even for prior seasons, they've run a ton of offense sort of um, getting Jason Tatum off ball around the elbow. The whole, you know, half the league runs this set. But basically, it's a set where someone has the ball 40 feet away and they bring it up. And then Tatum is at the elbow with a teammate and he gets a little screen that he can pop off of and start from there. And it's like, in this series, they don't even they don't even start actions that way. Um, does it matter at the end of the day that they don't start actions that way? I don't know. I'm literally just pointing out that sometimes teams will try to stay in the skeleton of their offense, but they're so obsessed with looking for switch hunting. And we talked about how that can burn clock, especially late in the game when there's uh, miscommunications and things like that. And it's like every possession, literally not every possession, but most of the half court possessions, they're trying to find Steph Curry and create screens. And then what are you going to do? Do you get a wing isolation against him? There's a couple of clips I included in the video where Again, I think that's not how you... I think that plays into the Warriors' strengths. I think that's not a good way to attack them. So you're going to have overloads. You're going to have doubles. Curry himself is going to hold his ground just with strength in the post. And they're not the only team that that does this, right? A lot of teams do this. But I wonder at this point in the series if the Celtics are going to move away from that a little bit. One counter we might see is they could look like they're trying to run the same actions and then instead of screening hard and looking for the switch you slip it the screener slips it so every time marcus smart goes to set that screen you slip it um the celtics had another way of getting into the mismatch which is a little bit more creative they would have curry curry's man have the ball so usually marcus smart and then tatum would come over that's the mismatch that they want tatum would come over and set the screen and just try to like wedge his body in between the ball handler and Curry. And then that forces Curry to go under and then smart dribbles back out. And then Tatum kind of basically pushes him down into the post. And it's like, oops, you forced a switch Uh, again. I don't know if that's the best attack. So I wonder moving forward in game six, it's not to say they don't want to keep trying to wear down Curry on that end to affect the offense. But I just wonder if they change it slightly because I don't know if getting like, I don't know if getting that mismatch actually leads to the level of offense that the Celtics are going to need to beat Golden State's offense on the other end. And to shout out Curry again, because I don't think we praise Curry enough on this podcast. We don't talk about him. Yeah, no, definitely not. But it was the the idea that you can just like abuse this guy all the time on defense just is not true. Like there's a play in the last minute of the third quarter where Brown gets Curry on a switch and might. Oh, is it even I think I'm citing the wrong part. I don't actually remember at what point the game is. You're just going to have to trust me that this happened sometime in game in game five. But Brown gets the switch on him and he's in the paint and Curry is just fighting him like he is battling in the post. And I think it's smart that tries to enter it in. Right. He tries to throw a really long entry pass and Curry's fighting him and the ball goes out of bounds all because Curry is being super physical and strong in the paint. Right. And so that's the thing is he's going to fight you. It's not like he's a turnstile that you can just go and attack. And then ultimately, big picture, this idea of like them mismatch hunting is sort of the criticism that I've had of the Celtics throughout the series, where I Hmm. feel like every action that they have isn't necessarily getting their guys on the move, being able to catch and immediately go. I thought they did a really good job of that in game four. In game four, but there are multiple possessions where like Tatum catches it as he's in his stride, as Brown is in his stride so they can keep 
keep going with their attack. This game, again, though, they finish whatever action that they're running, and they catch it, and then there's this standstill, where it's like, all right, we did all of this stuff, and now there's 12 seconds on the clock, it's an isolation against Curry, it's an isolation against Poole. And I know it looks pretty. Like, I think when, when Tatum started to get it going at the end of the first, I think he had one where, where I think it might have been Peyton on him in the, the mid post, and Jason Tatum hits this nice turnaround jumper, you watch that, you get shades of Kobe Bryant, you get shades of Michael Jordan, you're like, this is beautiful basketball right here. But like, that shot is great. That shot is great as almost a last result, a last resort, or as like a, the play is stagnating and we need to get some kind of a shot. It's not great as option A. It's just not going to be as efficient as getting somebody a wide open shot because there is movement and people had to rotate and things like that. So that, I, I feel like they reverted back to those same things that I criticized them for in game five. And, and that shot you're thinking of, which was a brilliant make, is at max probably a 40% field goal attempt in the lo- at max. Yeah. I mean, he had the little d- double fake both ways. His, his footwork almost got tied up into a travel and then just amazing ability to turn back over the right shoulder uh, and make that one. But this also gets me to the difference between, it goes back to our Steve Kerr thing to start um, full circle. The Golden State offense is designed to attack weaknesses within the flow of the normal offense on every possession, whether that's a pick and roll for Steph Curry or whether that's off-ball movement, you know, split cuts, whatever it is. That's the goal of their offense on every possession in the half court. How can we attack weaknesses? How can we read and react to where the defense is vulnerable? A lot of other teams in the postseason, and I think it's one thing if you're LeBron James, it's one thing if you're Luka Doncic, and you are literally the best in class at that role. But even for someone like Jason Tatum, who's a step down as an offensive player, um, has made huge strides as a playmaker, but he's not LeBron or Luka as a passer. You're essentially tasking players like that with playing like this perfect heliocentric basketball by switch hunting and saying, like, we're going to create a mismatch and then everything's going to revolve through you. And then you even either score against your mismatch or you make the perfect pass and we go into rotation and we, and we play from there. Um, and again, if that's not how you're used to playing, if that doesn't generate 115, 120 offensive ratings organically, the thing that's very fascinating to me is it's actually asking teams to come out of their normal offense to find a weakness. Again, the Warriors' normal offense is finding the weakness. With, with the way the Celtics and many other teams play in the playoffs when they switch hunt like this, it's like you are asking a lot of guys in positions that they aren't used to being in throughout the season and they haven't demonstrated they can create elite offense in. I have a semi-historical question for you based on this. what's a, what's a, I'm fascinated. What is a semi-historical question? So, is it within the last six seasons? Yeah, it's like within the last decade or so, but that, it can also span further than that. I know there was always like matchup hunting. I feel like when, when, when not matchup hunting, but there was always mismatch exploitation that I remember from the past. And I feel like in like the 90s and stuff, it happened a lot more in the post. But I don't feel like the discourse about matchup hunting was a thing until LeBron really popularized it. Am I wrong in that? Is LeBron really the first player to to popularize matchup uh, matchup hunting like this? I think so. Um, you know, when you do these lineages, 
it's it's like it's like trying to trace human history where do you draw the line in the sand mm-hmm. you know what i mean like mm-hmm. like someone did it seven times in a game in europe and then a Cavs coach saw that and then gave it to lebron and then he does more so I, i'm not saying he's the first person to ever do it or ever do it more than once or something but it definitely feels like uh that when he went back to cleveland this was a thing that they started doing. And it makes sense. It makes sense for a couple of reasons. If we can stay semi-historical here for a second, Cody. Oh, um, please. It, it makes sense because, one, you needed pace and space. You, you needed the space of the game to be able to play like this with three-point shooters out on the perimeter so you could then create the matchup and, and play a kind of, quote-unquote, Helio game from there. Um, but you, you also... Um, I've completely lost my train of thought. What did I say? There are two things. Yeah, something about you need you need a certain kind of thing to make sure it works, and one of them was pace and space. Maybe I can't. No, space, the the space was clearly the one thing. Okay, I can't remember the other. Oh, the I, I think you need you need LeBron James. You need a oh, player. Yeah. Yeah, you, you need players who can play like this. And so if you go through the 90s and the 2000s and you don't have a lot of guys who are used to playing that heavy load basketball or whatnot, um, then it's very hard to get into a key playoff series and sort of be the first person to popularize that, right? It's the fact that LeBron himself was also so good at playing that way. LeBron himself was so comfortable with the teams he had in Cleveland saying like, well, this is a way we can attack that I think he actually, um, I, I do, I do think semi-historically he made it, he made it popular. But now because he's made it popular, we are seeing other teams do it without players at that level. And it's, it's a very interesting question to me about like, you know, whether doing that 80% of the time on your half-court possessions is actually the optimal strategy. I think another thing, too, that contributes to it maybe not being a historical thing is I think super switch-heavy defenses is kind of a much more modern touch to, to defenses. I feel like it was a lot, lot more hedge and recover back in the day. And of course, like you were saying with LeBron, I think there's this aspect of like when you see somebody really doing it for the first time and it's talked about, you see somebody like LeBron doing it and you're like, oh, that looks pretty easy. Like, I'll just get the smaller guy matched up on me. I'll just drive and kick and there's an open three. And then you realize that uh, it doesn't quite work that way. Yeah. I mean, off the top of my head, I think three players in the last decade really thrive in that environment. And that's about it. LeBron, Luca, and James Harden are really the only three that I can think of who it's like, yeah, that that's how they attack. If you put them in those situations, they're, I, I'm not going to be surprised if you see offensive ratings at 115, 120, whatever it is. But asking other players to play like that, um, I'm not sure. Your other point will stay semi-historical here for a second. We've got to get T-shirts now that say semi-historians. <laughs> um, the, the mismatch hunting... In the old days, you couldn't, you didn't look for switches and all the stuff that you just described. It was usually in the post. And so teams tried to avoid switching upstream in the possession because then the second that happened, you would get like mouse in the house, right? Mm -hmm. The second you had a big guy. And remember, uh, if you haven't watched basketball in the old days, there used to just be oak trees 
out there. You used to have like two seven footers. Tim Duncan, Greg Popovich tried to play Tim Duncan at small forward with David Robinson and Will Perdue, who was another seven foot, you know, he would be a drop big today. Um, you know, Omer Ashik and Joe Kim Noah and Taj Gibson. Yeah, let's just play all those guys and things like that. So there were giants and and even sometimes your small forwards were really big. And the way the game was played, and especially the game the way the way the game was officiated. If you got a small guy who wasn't physically strong, say 6'5 and under, on one of these bigs, it didn't even like matter if he wasn't a good offensive player. They would just send him right to the front of the rim, and they would throw him the ball. And I contend to this day, that is why Timothy Mozgov averaged like 39 points a game in the 2015 NBA Finals. Uh, but, you know, the, especially the way they officiate these things has changed. And the tactics for protecting people in the post have evolved quite a bit. Uh, and so you don't really see that anymore. But it did used to be a thing. Whereas like the mismatch wasn't ISO clear out, get the switch, whatever. The mismatch was if there's a small dude on a big dude sent him to the front of the rim, and it's big trouble. Man, I'm just thinking about big, big lineups. Like Ralph Sans- Sampson and Hakeem Olajuwon. Hakeem. Like, let's just play yeah. them together. Let's just be ginormous out there. Yeah, I wish I wish we could somehow get that with uh, the skill ball that we have today. And, and, you know, maybe we can see that that's still a competitive advantage, the Celtics being able to play Rob Williams and um, Al Horford. Should we have a, should we have a, a, a mea culpa on Rob Williams. I mean, we mm. used the term, it wasn't a Rob Williams series. And, and yet Rob's minutes, and when he's out there, um, my, my wife watching the game the other night, she's just like, oh my God, Rob Williams is so good at his role. And I'm like, you don't even watch basketball. She's like, he's really good <laughs> at that role. And I'm like, that's, that's, that's correct. Yeah. He's, uh, I don't know if you want to say anything about Rob, but you know, his minutes and his, his health, he, they, they've still attacked him in this series, but um, when he's down there and, and his shot blocking in the paint uh, and definitely on offense as well, just being in the dunker spot, offensive rebounding, it, it's been huge for the Celtics and they've been able to at times play these giant teams with Rob Williams, Al Horford, Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown. Those are huge by modern standards. You're really stretching my, my memory here, but I'm, I'm thinking back to game four if you can all remember what a game four was, that that was before game five. Um, oh, I wasn't on a podcast with you after game four. That's why I feel like we haven't talked about this. We no, ha- is that true? After game four where where Curry hit all those threes? Wait, what? Did we not have a podcast after a game? Did I make this I up? Thought, I thought we. I thought maybe that was another day. Who knows? I can't remember this. Anyway. Anyway, I'm, I'm thinking of this play where, where I'm thinking of Rob's gravity now, this interior gravity. And I don't know, it was either Derek White or Marcus Smart, but there's this play where, where one of them is driving into the basket, driving to the rim. And Draymond Green is there. And obviously, Draymond, we just talked about him being a great rim protector. He's so nervous about the lob threat that's Rob that he, like, stays glued on him. Like, he has his whole body thrown in front of him and literally just lets whoever this is drive in for a layup. And I feel like that sort of thing happened a couple of times. And you can see why, like, Brown has thrown a couple of lobs that were just a little bit off. But it doesn't matter. There is no off. His catch radius is just unbelievable so offensively he opens up so much when he's out there and then defensively I didn't know where I was going to slip this in but you threw up a lob for me and I'm so excited about this because some some Rob Williams defensive stats this is this is wild to me this is wild to me so when Rob's on the court let's actually do when he's off the court because that's more fun so when Rob is off the court right the Warriors are shooting 81 and a half percent 81 percent 81 percent yeah when he's on the court they're shooting 50 
59% at the rim. It, it's hilarious. I have the exact same note. The, I don't know what to make of this, though, because one of the quirks here is that when he's on the court, they take 16 shots every 100 at the rim. So they shoot it more at the rim when he's on the court. Yeah. And when he's off the court, they take 12. So it makes sense. Your volume's going down and your efficiency's going up. So they're more selective. I don't know if that's transition. I, I don't know what's going on, but it is it is a wild number. My only um, my only theory about that, because I thought that too, is is it possible that they're funneling a little bit more to Rob? I don't think I've seen that. There's never been a time when I'm like, oh, they're just letting Rob get get that block. But I didn't know if that was an aspect of it. Furthermore, I don't know how to parse the the tracking locations anymore because of what's going on with Gold State, where they refuse to count certain shots as being rim attempts. They're notorious for mm. undercounting rim attempts, so I don't know what's going on. Rob Williams, though, in this series, Celtics are plus 10 per 100 possessions. When he plays, they're minus 16 per 100 possessions. When he sits, again, small sample, a lot of noise, a lot of variability, but indicative of the fact that at least when he's been out there, it's been successful. 105 offensive rating for the Warriors when Rob Williams is on the court. That doesn't control for Steph Curry because the Warriors offense without Steph Curry in this series uh, has has been well below the 118, 117 that when he's out there. But again, I mean, I, I think the Celtics, if they can make the right defensive adjustments in game six and Rob Williams is healthy and that knee's comfortable and he's moving and playing 30 minutes, um, as long as they can, I think, get that shot profile, that shot diet to be a little cleaner on offense, especially with that home court, they have to feel good about forcing a seventh game. Man, one of the one of these days, Ben, may, maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but one of these days, Ben, we need to talk about tough shot making and Jalen Brown and, and Jason Tatum, because I think there's some interesting stuff to talk about with with the value of being a tough shot maker. Let's leave it right there, because, you know, maybe they come out and hit a ton of tough shots and in game six and we'll just serve a layup you know if you're if you're a listener from the future and you're doing game five pod it's going to flow right into the game six pod we'll pick up this discussion um with their tough shot making if you want to support this show directly check out patreon.com slash thinking basketball that is the best way to support all things thinking basketball directly we have additional content oh we've got for the nba finals uh live our our proprietary box score that we use throughout the playoffs is updating after every finals game so if you want to just look at series stats specifically some of the stats we pulled today with rob williams or on off numbers or things like that patreon.com slash thinking basketball thanks as always for listening all the way through hope you are enjoying this nba finals as much as we are and wherever you're listening from of course that you are having a great day 